Uh, listen, I uh, really appreciate the work of Ripmont Society, and rather than give a speech here this morning, probably what would be more interesting to you, based on the fact that I've been in audiences before, is if you ask the questions and I try to briefly answer them, and we, we get some of the uh, things that are on your mind uh, addressed. I will say this about uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee. We have, in the last session, we passed uh, some 40 bills through the House, 24 of those bills became law. The Washington Post ranks me among the top five in terms of most effective members of Congress. So we have moved an awful lot of legislation, which I'm afraid would bore you if I went into the details. So why don't we why don't we open it up to your questions about issues you're interested in, or interested in issues foreign or domestic that are in the news. Do you want to ask Peter? Go ahead. You look impressive. Mr. Chairman, there's an article today in the New York Times about political and judicial repression in Poland. We also know it's made its way to Hungary, yes. other places in Central Europe, and as one who has been such a strong advocate of human rights, basically free, free elections, and ruled by law. Are you concerned about what's occurring in Eastern Europe, and is there anything that the United States can do or should be doing? And, and Peter, also concerned about about the undercurrent on social media that supports this trend. Uh, one of the concerning things that uh, that has developed, if you remember back to the 1980s, how effective the United States was in radio, in television, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, it is now the case that Moscow is every bit that effective. And they have uh, become very expert at supporting a certain uh, pattern of thought, which is very authoritarian, very hard-edged, and which increasingly, in Eastern Europe, is moving an illiberal element um, uh, into positions of power. My great concern about Sputnik and RT television, and especially the uh, social media that's deployed, is you can monitor uh, in all the former Soviet states, the feelings about Putin and watch them increase arithmetically year after year in the Gallup polling. And you can monitor the feelings about the UK and the United States and watch it fine. And it's largely driven by this narrative. It is driven because they put a billion dollars a year into it, but also because the KGB has become so damn effective. I met Putin in 95, 94. He was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. And I remember well the discussions at the time, and he was arm wrestling a uh, friend of mine, Jack Wheeler, who we brought along because he knew Russia. And neither could get the better of the other. And finally, uh, midway through, as they're straining every senior, they both jump up. And Putin yells at him and points him in the chest. KGB, uh, no, CIA, and, and uh, Jack goes, KGB to Putin, and Putin starts laughing. And that's the first time I realized that, that Putin, you know, obviously was somebody other than just a deputy mayor. Watching his overhaul uh, of that communications and watching the growth of this type of thinking across Eastern Europe uh, it is, uh, tells us that, frankly, we are not competing. So I had legislation to overhaul the broadcasting board of governors, replace them, 
with a strong CEO. We are bringing in the old uh, NED, uh, National Endowment for Democracy folks, that did such a great job during Reagan. I, I watched their effectiveness at the time. I was in Eastern Germany in 1985 on an exchange program, and I watched the way the attitudes of Germans were changing as they were learning about political pluralism and tolerance and what was really happening in Eastern Germany. And so I, I know how effective this can be countered, but we haven't countered it. Uh, and so now we're putting in place an overhaul, and we will, we will drive that from Congress. And, and Peter, it's, it's essential, because otherwise, otherwise uh, the power that Russia has over its former satellites uh, will eventually metastasize into a situation where we, we, we see a real diminution of, of democracy in these countries. Yes, Bobby? Sure, just staying on the topic of Russia, I wonder yeah. if you might just uh, share an update on the Russia sanctions legislation that you all working through. Well, I think the, the meetings went well last night. We uh, uh, I have agreed to put into the bill my uh, second bill on North Korean sanctions. As you know, Bobby, uh, last session we passed legislation that uh, had given the administration the authority to shut down the financial system so we could get, keep hard currency out of, their, out of their hands. And we, we then went to the Security Council, the UN, and got uh, support for that. Um, there was a loophole in it that Beijing is using, and then also there's a loophole the North Koreans are using in terms of sending their indentured labor out to work overseas in Qatar and countries like that. And the check is not paid to the workers. The check comes to Beijing. They, this is done in, in uh, a number of different countries, actually, and the total amount is over a billion dollars a year. Well, it's about two billion they need a year for their very expensive nuclear weapons program. So we want to shut that down, and we want to shut the banking system down. We agreed last night to put the uh, North Green Bill into the legislation. I talked to Corker in the wee hours, and he's fine with that. Uh, we're not going to put in this, well, I, I won't go into other details, but we have worked out a lot of outlines of the agreement. We will pass that over into the Senate, and uh, we have, I think, Cardin's support right now for what we're what we want to do, and we, we've got to do it quickly. We've got to do it before we get out of here in August. We've got to wrap it all up in case there's any loose ends or any new surprises like the parliamentarian gave us with respect to, um, you know, the blue slip process. Uh, all, all spending bills have to originate in the House, and that, that slowed us down a little bit. But we've now, I think, got everything in line for a UC request uh, to move forward. Yes? So some have identified uh, another challenge as China investments in Africa. Um, how would you assess that, those investments? Is there something that the United States should be doing in response? So do, do some of you here have you met Rosa Whitaker, who was the USTR for Africa uh, under both the Clinton and Bush administrations? Rosa told me a story. Is, is there any press in the room? No. Okay, so Rosa told me a story uh, uh, after she finished her tenure in that job, and, and she did a very, very effective job because we had deployed the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which was legislation I wrote with uh, Charlie Rangel 
and that legislation opened up the markets, opened up our markets to African exports as long as it was conditional on rule of law, conditional on setting up judicial systems, you know, court systems, independent judges, and it gave us the leverage to really help civil society, but also to double and then triple trade between the United States and Africa. It turns out China was on the ground giving the opposite advice. So they notice how well, how effective she is as our USTR. And they contact Rosa Whitaker and they give her an offer she can't refuse. They ask her to fly to Beijing and they're going to hire her. But they explain to her their plan for how they're going to handle Africa. What they're going to do is undermine civil society, undermine the courts, no independent judges. Their offer to a given head of state is we can provide you assistance with your security apparatus. And by the way, in China, all the decisions are made by three people. We think in your system it should be one. Maybe your son-in-law, too. You know, one should be making the decision. And you should be sole sourcing. You should be sole sourcing to us. Anyway, she came back so upset and met with myself and Tom Sheehy. And Rosa Whitaker laid out for us their entire plan. And what I see going on today in terms of the looting in Africa is what she told me about. It is vitally important that Europe and the U.S. and others stand for the position around the world of anti-corruption statutes and rule of law and if um, and independent courts. And I think that we do have some examples of how we can pressure China. Last year, I pushed through legislation ending the uh, ivory trade, making it illegal, and having our special operations people on the ground assist the park rangers in Africa, because as you know, Al-Shabaab and these other terrorist organizations are using this now as their means of getting their hands on, on hard currency. And so we did have an embrace, and if you remember, when the bill became law, China began closing down all of the uh, all of the stores that deal in ivory across China, and they began to shut down that business model because they were trafficking an awful lot of that into Asia. So when you can find um, legislation which can be deployed internationally. The other thing we did was on social media in China. Remember, we do Radio Free Asia also. And so it was very effective getting information into China about how this China's conduct was threatening the eradication of the black rhino and the elephant and so forth. And, and, and that resonated. That resonated in China. And they decided, OK, can't beat them, join them. We'll shut that down. We'll look better. So we, we do have to find ways to get information to the younger generation of Chinese in order to enlist them in efforts for response, responsible stewardship and conduct, you know? And, and much more needs to go into this. It's a longer discussion. But uh, I, I am feeling particularly good that that, that has been effective so far. Other questions, yes? I heard a presentation yesterday by a Democratic senator who was talking about 
the, the Russian efforts into cyberspace and, and cyber warfare. Yes. And I'm just wondering from a, I mean, he kind of said, his contention, I guess, without putting words in his mouth, was the U.S. needs to have a military response, to, military in the sense of cyber military response to this kind of activity. I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts on what's, how do you respond when well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly of his thesis, but a couple of years ago, I laid out uh, my argument to the Pentagon. And it, it sort of goes like this. For those of you who remember the Billy Mitchell story, uh, before Pearl Harbor, Billy Mitchell uh, argued that air power could sink a dreadnought, could sink a battleship. And uh, this was dismissed. He wanted a separate air force, right? Uh, he got court-martialed because in order to demonstrate this, he disobeyed orders and came right over the top of, of the battleship and dropped that ordinance and blew it out of the water. So he was summarily court-martialed, but he had made his point. Uh, and, uh, you know, as the war drug on, eventually the decision was made to set up a separate United States Air Force. What I've argued is that the same thing needs to happen. There needs to be a cyber command. But beyond that, Based on what I've seen in Israel, with the 8200 unit, where they, you know, we've got the Marine Corps. What they've got are all these young guys. Now, this is a high school age. They bring these men and women into the 8200 unit. And, you know, they, they've got some kind of reputation as Marines, although rather than bronze and brains. They're working specifically on how to hack into Moscow, Beijing, Tehran. Else. Uh, and they do it better than anybody I've seen. Uh, their officer corps there, like, uh, I mean, we, you meet the colonels, they're like, nine, they're, they're like 20. You ought to see these kids. When they graduate out of this outfit, and everybody wants to be in there, so it's, it's just the same as being in the Marines. You know, you want that on your resume, because Microsoft is going to hire you in Tel Aviv when you graduate out of that program. But by taking young minds, you know how, how uh, mathematicians do their best work when they're young? By taking these young people and, and developing the next generation of experts, they are able to keep ahead of this. And it also means that young people want to go into this line of work. What I've suggested is we set up the equivalent of this in Palo Alto so that we change the, look, I'm libertarian-leaning, but we change the extreme libertarian culture to one that is also patriotic, in the sense that the sons and daughters of all these IT greats want to go into a unit that's established for cybersecurity. And you can graduate all out of that and help Visa or help whoever, you know, uh, uh, after you've helped your country defend itself. Because right now, I can tell you that it's not just Moscow and Beijing that's spending so much time. Some years ago, the North Koreans contracted out. And uh, even though they don't currently do any training in Beijing, uh, they may still in Moscow, they developed a really, you, you wouldn't think this would be humanly possible, a really top flight capability. You can tell this by their economic warfare on South Korea, where they, you know, where they shut down the banking system. I mean, incredible that they and um, it, it shows you just how far behind the West is in terms of the preoccupation. When your society is like Athens, you, you, you 
create a lot of new concepts. But if you're Sparta, you know how to do one thing well. And, uh, and, and the unfortunate situation is for those systems which are command and control like that, where they put all the focus, as, as, as Moscow is doing right now, as Beijing is doing, and certainly as North Korea is doing, it puts us at a, a very great disadvantage. And I, I think the only way around it is probably to elevate that to equal status, because that is probably a challenge in the future. And I think we're making the same, same mistake we made going into the Second World War. Yes? Since you're one of the few that actually understands sort of the juncture of foreign policy and finance, Kenya, we give them about $150 million free. Uh, we don't get any actual economic activity, really. Chinese do. They build the airport. They do it all through loans. They do it pretty much a corrupt practice of loaning. We don't see the World Bank, the IFC, the IMF, playing the roles they used to play in many instances. The U.S. can't afford to use, give money like that. How do we counter the Chinese, specifically in Africa, and now in some cases Latin America, because we're not willing to either utilize those global institutions or U.S. dollars and cents in loan facilities where the Chinese actually are? Well, you're, you're the point is, we do put the resources into those institutions. Uh, what we don't use is the muscle for leverage that should be utilized. And Reagan used those. Well, go back to the Overseas Private Investment Corporation and some of these other things we argue about. And those were tools that he deployed. And he did it specifically for this reason. Although, back, well, back then the comp competition was primarily the Russians and Africa, but it was also the Chinese, if you want to call And so we need to relearn how to play hardball. And uh, I was recently in Kenya, and Ethiopia, Tanzania. The discussions there with senior African leaders, for uh, business leadership, for example, we're having our, uh, having my sons and daughters learn Mandarin. Well, why are you doing that? Well, that's going to become the language of commerce, because when the Chinese come, they don't come and employ us. They bring their own people here. And so if you, if you go into the capital and you'll see, you know, 100,000, 250,000 Chinese, and um, in that kind of environment, people who are ambitious are thinking ahead in, in terms of how. Now, this marks a great sea change in the way in which Africans who have a very positive view of the United States <coughs> Um, I mean, civil society is especially anxious about what's happening because it's not exploitation on the level of, of the exploitation of France or Britain or Portugal with respect to Africa, but it is still considered exploiting the way the Chinese are doing it. And uh, I would suggest the times at hand for the United States policy to figure out a strategy country by country. We need the kind of attitude that our UN um, ambassador, Nikki Haley, is bringing to the United Nations. We need that deployed among the African Union with respect to our engagement there in order to protect commerce and the 
fact that we need rules of the road which are open. Those, if, if you have open an open system, it's going to advantage the United States, advantage Europe. But if you if you have corruption, it will advantage Beijing, and this has to be addressed. And and we've got to be forceful about doing it. And unfortunately, right now there are only seven people appointees in the State Department for us to talk to in the new administration. And part of that is it takes 30 hours now to get an appointment. Yeah, the administration was late getting appointments down there. But at this point, it becomes almost a moot point because it will take 11 years for the administration to fill out the agencies according to the analysis what was at the Washington Post. I mean, we have got to get some kind of agreement in the Senate with Chuck Schumer that does not necessitate 30 hours for every appointment because we need policy people right now uh, now that we've decided to go back on office to help implement these policies around the world. I mean, for a while, we, we sort of withdrew from engagement on a lot of these issues. Now it's, it's time for us to force, 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 forcefully re-engage. Uh, other suggestions or questions on other issues? Hey, real quick. The president is perceived as having isolationist tendencies. To what extent do you believe that to be correct? Uh, I think I think there has been an element of isolationism on the American right that has come and gone uh, and resurfaced uh, perennially, and it's it, it's it's part of a debate uh, in terms of how engaged we should be. Uh, my experience, uh, I'm an enthusiast of Reagan, so obviously I think that we should be a strong voice for liberty all over the globe because I, I, I saw it work when it was articulated. Uh, if I could say that there has been there has been quite a reaction as a consequence of what happened in the Middle East and our adventures, adventurism, or however you want to put it, uh, going into Iraq that has left an element of the conservative movement that says, let's not do that again. And so weighing the effectiveness of Reagan and what he was able to do in Eastern Europe and with the former Soviet Union and do it effectively. Well, he, he used a different methodology, though, too. Remember, I mean, he used social media. He was able to articulate these concepts like no one else. You know, we, we deployed Radio Free Asia Radio Free Europe in a way that we have not used, utilized since, and certainly uh, haven't used in the Middle East effectively. So I would argue that maybe we're learning the wrong lessons. Maybe we should do this in a less confrontational way, but we should, should certainly use what worked. And that means really overhauling from social media on out how we engage in Iran. Can you imagine a situation in Iran where two-thirds of the people tell the Gallup polling organization, we want a Western-style democracy without a theology, without a, a theocracy, and we made the decision to link hands with the Ayatollah in an environment like that? The former administration reached out not to the people in the streets, not to the students protesting a stolen election, but instead told the various U.S. government agencies, from the State Department, the CIA, and so forth, cool it, our relationship. I don't know if you read the New York Times piece on this, but it was pretty good. Our relationship is going to be with the Ayatollah. 
And, and I guess the concept was when he understands that we mean him no harm, then uh, all's going to be well. Unfortunately, that's built upon a wrong premise, as we now see, since the Ayatollah gave that speech, what, uh, not too long ago, about it being the responsibility of every military man to mass produce ICBMs to figure out how they'll do that. As the chairman of the Joint Chiefs says, intercontinental ballistic means intercontinental, like from there to here. So, unfortunately, we've misread this situation. So I think, I, I think as I watch these viewpoints about us, you know, and, and believe me, I had plenty of discussions with the former president about this. I know his viewpoint too. And these ideas are on the left as well as as the as the right in terms of sort of isolationism and, and work out if we withdraw. I'm skeptical about that. I think there's better ways for us to do it. I think there's better ways for us to sell uh, principles, ideals. We can learn from Reagan how to do it. But I think uh, I think this tendency to believe that if we if we I don't think we can remove ourselves from the Baltic states. I'll tell you that. Uh, I'm leading a delegation there soon, and we're going to be in Poland, and we're going to. We're going to be trying to push on those elements in those societies that still look to the United States and believe in free speech, you know, uh, in free press, not closing down competing newspapers, as recently happened in Hungary, uh, who believe in, uh, in our ideals. We, we've got to push that. We've got to push that. And I, I think the president might learn from experience. He's fairly inexperienced in this. I mean, I can remember every single president going back uh, a number of years who thought they could look into Putin's eyes and reach an understanding <laughs> or thought they were going to push that reset button, you know, with Russia. How many times have we heard this? Oh, yeah, we're well, going to get off on a different foot with Putin. Uh, Putin's the same old KGB colonel that I watched uh, Jack Wheeler Armworth wrestle with, you know? Same attitudes. He was very adversarial. He had a real attitude about the United States. We talked to him that day. And that attitude is not changed. Ellie, who, who you got? Oh, hello, Ann. Thank you. Um, in terms of the last administration, the U.S. for many, many decades had a strategy and a policy that was Okay, well, this will be our, our last question. And Anne, I would just share with you that uh, if we look at the conduct of the last administration, and it starts with sending Churchill's bust back to, uh, back to Britain, if you walked country by country across those 
governments who have been our allies. And the individual who I heard do this very effectively was, was Bill Clinton's former CIA director. He explained how the Obama administration had turned this on its head in a speech uh, that, I, that I heard him lay out. And by the time he had given all the examples from how <clears throat> we had told China that they could keep the peace in Asia at a time when India obviously wanted to be recognized as an equal partner, when uh, he gave the example of the treatment of Israel, the treatment of our allies, <clears throat> uh, the monarchies, where there was uh, sort of an outreach to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the treatment in Egypt of, of a government that had been an ally. By the time he'd gone all the way around the world, uh, you were left with a feeling that we kicked a lot of our friends in the teeth. And we really empowered, different, well, the Ayatollah. We had made a bet. We'd embraced the Muslim Brotherhood. We had, we had done an outreach to those who, instead of being impressed by it, took it as an opportunity to read into it that we were retreating around the world. And as a consequence, we undermined many of those allies. One of the things we're trying to do on the Foreign Affairs Committee right now, and we have with us uh, a representative of the government in Belgium, but uh, the European delegation is here. I talked to uh, I talked to the last night before last, and uh, we're sending this message of solidarity. Look, we share this vision and of of the enlightenment. You know, of the rights of man, of, of, of fundamental human rights and dignity. And these are principles, along with democratic governance, that deserve defending. And we should be on the right side of history, on the right side of human rights, on the right side of fighting human trafficking and all the rest, and explaining these concepts around this globe. And my hope is we find our voice to do this, we will find those who want to do it in a bipartisan way and join us, but Republicans must lead because you and the Ripon Society know better than anybody else. This is the party of Lincoln. This is the foundation of this political party. And those of us that understand it and believe in it need to grab onto that ideal and infuse that into our domestic and foreign policies. This represents human empowerment. Here, empowerment of freedom around the globe. And so thank you very much for having me here to speak before the Rivers.